This is a free excerpt from Reconstruction, a Slate Academy. You can listen to the complete episode and learn more about this members-only podcast series at slate.com slash reconstruction. So turning from larger cultural perceptions of violence and Black reactions during this period to the work of a scholar who looks at personal stories and testimonies of racial violence, um, we're fortunate to have Kadada Williams, who's the author of They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I. I think her perspective on violence and her use of people's particular stories of it shows how you know difficult it is to see this period as purely a period of self-defense. Welcome, Kadada. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to ask you a question first that um, kind of stems from our earlier conversation. I'm curious how much we historians and, you know, just people who are interested um, can know about the historical shape of the violence committed against free people during Reconstruction. Um, is it possible to sort of assess how many incidents, uh, where, when, what the patterns were, you know, geographic or, you know, time, um, and what the patterns were in free people's responses? Um, you know, how much of that do we know and how much of it is lost to us? Well, I would say a lot of it is lost to us. Um, from the records that we have, I would say there's only a frac, they only capture a fraction of the people who are attacked. Um, and I also think that at some point we should have a conversation about what kind of violence we're talking about. Um, are we talking about everyday violence that occurred between former master and former slave, which is generally one on one? Or are we talking about um, malicious clashing, you know, the Union League, the Klan clashing against each other in sort of prepared battle spaces? Or are we talking about the night rides, those vigilante attacks on African-American families in their homes in the middle of the night? So the thing is that you've got all of this violence occurring and it is being documented in a variety of places. So like I said, there's the everyday violence. Some of that violence is documented by the Freedmen's Bureau agents. You've got the clashes between uh, militias. Those are often recorded in newspapers. And then you have the testimonies before Congress. Their 1871 investigation into Ku Klux Klan attacks. Several hundred African-Americans testify before Congress. And those testimonies are more likely to capture people who were targeted by night riders. They were trapped in their homes in the middle of the night with armed men. So we know when, where, how. The violence occurred, but again, only a fraction of the stories are actually captured. People die, so of course they can't report. They don't report because they're living in fear of their lives. They flee for their safety, so they are nowhere around to report, except they may tell family members. Um, even in places where they do report, their stories may be suppressed. So could you say a little a little about that broader violence, um, those, these other forms of violence that occurred during the period that may not be captured by these more official records? So the everyday violence. So I think if we sort of backtrack a little bit, if we think about like how inherently violent slavery was, right? You don't steal anyone's life or labor without a fight. And Africans and African-Americans fought enslavement on a daily basis. Um, and the slaveholding class had to rely on steady streams of physical and psychological violence to extract the labor that they did. And I think a great example of that is Alada Equiano's statement that to make a man a slave is to make him live with you in a state of war. 
And so masters and slaves fight that war on a daily basis throughout slavery's existence. And so I think we have to sort of keep that in mind. So that violence kind of continues and it continues during the war. We've got this nice and neat picture of emancipation and the truth is really quite different. Enslaved people, they have to wage war for freedom during the context of the Civil War. So they're running away from plantations. They're fighting their masters. They're refusing to work. And so this sort of war for freedom isn't limited to men joining the Union Army. It is a movement happening on farms and plantations across the South involving women, children, men who Mm -hmm. don't join the Army or they're too far away. And so what we see during Reconstruction is that Enslaved people know that slaveholders and those wannabe slaveholders are not going to let go of their vision of the world without a fight. Enslaved and uh, free blacks, they know slavery's inherent violence. They know they're going to have to fight, kill, and die for freedom, and they do that during the Civil War. And so what we see in the aftermath is still their uh, African-Americans' refusal to turn away from freedom, and they're encountering these former slaveholders and wannabe slaveholders who are still trying to resist the idea of emancipation, resist the outcomes of the war. And so a lot of the violence that we see after the war is a continuation of what happened during slavery. Um, They're working out the details of slavery's abolition, and it is incredibly violent. It is violent in the workplace. It is violent in home. It's violent in terms of where people, um, freed people are going to live and where they're going to work and under what terms they're going to work. So there's a lot of violence, but a lot of that violence tends to be former master, former slave. One man versus a um, man or woman, and they're able to interact with each other on a relatively even playing field. You know, so one may be physically stronger than the other, but it's one to one violence. And so just as the former master can attack the former slave, the former slave can attack the former master. What happens after 1867 when you've got universal male enfranchisement and when ex-Confederates realize they're not going to be punished for succession is something very different. This is when you've got the organized attacks. This is when you have the Ku Klux Klan. This is when you have the violence that is, in many ways, unthinkable and sometimes unspeakable for some of the survivors. So when you say former master, former slave, you're talking about people who knew each other. Absolutely. Like who were in that relationship before. Okay. And so then with the Ku Klux Klan, it's a different thing in a way. or not. I mean, you know, sometimes it's former master, sometimes it's former slave, um, where they actually have a longer history with with each other. Sometimes they have a new relationship, like they may be familiar with mm. them because they're in the community. But these are people that everyday violence is people who know each other. Um, they've interacted with each other. Um, what we see during the night rides is a combination of both. Like only some of the raids are indiscriminate. Um, many of the survivors know who attacked them because they recognize their voices. They recognize their body types. Um, so they know that these are their neighbors. They know that these are people in their community. There are instances where even though they're masked, you know, like young children cry out the name and say, I know that's you, you know. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So that, you know, and so they have a pretty good idea of who's attacked them. So these are not indiscriminate attacks. These are not random attacks for the most part. Some of them are, but many of them are not. They are specifically targeting people in their community who are politically active, who are resisting white authority and white power, and who are fighting the war for freedom. 
So one question I had, and this gets to both your writing and just an observation from our reading, is that so much of the violence we cover and talk about um, is sort of night Riders attacking people, kind of um, these sorts of assaults. But so far, we've just read very little about sexual violence. And so I'd, li- I'd like to hear how people in your research describe sexual violence and, and how that was received by the people taking testimony. Well, I think in terms of the historical record, sexual violence, we know that it's occurring, but it's not being described in the same uh, detail as physical violence. And I think that's for a variety of reasons. Um, Part of it is the language they use. They don't use terms like rape and sexual assault because that's not part of their vocabulary in the 19th century. They use phrases like made or forced, um, forcible connection, took their spite out on women. Um, So that's how it comes up in historical records. Um, We know that sexual assault is occurring in the context of attacks because there are often so many witnesses, um, sometimes in the context of a Klan raid, for example, or in the case of the Memphis riots, for uh, as another example, uh, these rapes are public. They happen outside in the yard. They happen in public spaces. There are many witnesses to them. Um, and so people, they do report it. They do testify about it. Um, we also know that a number of the women and girls need physical and medical treatment after their assaults. In testifying at the hearings and even giving reports to Freedmen's Bureau agents, agents are recording it. Um, investigators at the congressional hearings are um, documenting it. The thing is that they're not commenting on it. They're not probing. They're not asking for additional information because I think part of it is that they understand what happened to a degree and they don't need the details necessarily. Um, I think it's interesting that what I see is at least uh, for men testifying about sexual assault at the hearings, they are more likely to name uh, what we will call rape or sexual assault more directly when it happens to other women in the community than there are to women in their own families. Hmm. So they talk about it in much more general, vague terms as if it is too difficult for them to speak about or as if they want to protect their loved ones um, by not revealing the intimate details of their violation. Uh, women do testify about sexual assault uh, at the hearings. There aren't many women at the hearing to testify, but those who are sexually assaulted, they do testify about it. And these are violent attacks. They're very violent. These are often gang rapes. Um, they are often left with serious internal injuries as a result of their attacks. Coming back to the sort of connections between the violence that took place during slavery and after um, I'm curious how much we know about what the free people thought about the violence that they were encountering during Reconstruction. Like, did they have a theory of why it was happening? You know, is there is there evidence in the historical record of what they thought should be done to stop it, um, whether it be governmental intervention or that they should have more weapons or whether there are places in the historical record where people step back and sort of assess the situation and say what they think of it. Yes, absolutely. African-Americans understand quite clearly why whites are attacking them. Again, it's because of that long history that they have with each other. 
You know, they've spent most of their lives dealing with whites. They know what Du Bois calls the souls of white folk. And that freedom and liberation are going to require a fight. So when they testify about violence or when let's let's use an example, when they go to the Freedmen's Bureau office, they're simply reporting violence. They are not necessarily reflecting on it. But when they testify before a Congress, that is when you see them invoking the language of citizenship. Uh, that is when you see them using a language that indicates that they understand that their attackers are trying to limit their freedom, trying to stop them from pressing for civil and political rights, trying to stop them from enjoying the rights they already have or that they gain as a result of Reconstruction policies. So they know exactly what's going on. But what I think they're also doing when they testify before Congress is doing something that historians have not necessarily picked up on to the degree that they could or should. Historians looking at this violence often focus on the political consequences of Reconstruction violence. Survivors, at least those who are testifying before Congress, see it differently. They, their testimonies indicate they understand that this is the pillaging of their freedom. They understand the political dimensions, to be sure, but they are living in the aftermath of often catastrophic attacks. They have lost their property. They have lost their land. Their crops are still in the ground because they had to run for their lives and only with the clothes on their back. They have physical and psychological injuries that will require um, a long degree of healing if healing ever occurred. They lost family members. They lose their sense of place in their community. They even question their standing in the nation. And so when they're testifying before Congress, that is very clear. That's I think that's the message they're trying to communicate in terms of what happened to them. Um, and that I think historians and even politicians and reporters at the time night writing happened, they focus on the political outcomes. Survivors saw it differently. Do they in their either in testimony or in other places, can you see a conversation about armed self-defense and its pluses and minuses, or I don't know how to describe it. Is there a, you know, we're now sort of like having this conversation in some places in historical practice about whether or not people were able to defend themselves. Were free people talking about whether they should be practicing that at the time? Or is this something that we're sort of more interested in after the fact? I think this is something we're more interested in. And and in fact, like I'm troubled by it. Like I think it's the wrong approach. I think the right approach is to ask the question, in what circumstances were free people or people who were attacked? Let me just put it this way. In what circumstances were people who are attacked more likely to be able to defend themselves? And what did that look like? And the reason mm-hmm. I think that that's a better question is because people, they defended themselves from all types of attacks. You know, the former master meeting the former slaves, that for, that person is able to defend themselves in many instances um, to the point where they injure or kill the person who's attacking them. You know, so self-defense, even successful self-defense, even armed self-defense is possible. And even the Union League, you know, they've got all of these activities where they are arming, uh, drilling. Uh, you got the militias who are engaged in drilling. They're doing all of this to prepare to defend themselves in their communities. And they do defend themselves in their communities. What you see in night riding attacks is something that is really specific. 
Someone's ability to defend themselves against a night riding attack is going to be really dependent upon the immediate situation. You know, so as I said, you have to have warning that the attack is going to come. You have to have uh, you have to have weapons. You have to have working weapons. And what we often see, at least from survivors, is that they have personal um, protection pistols. But that pistol isn't going to fight off a gang of 100 men. Right. Yeah. So they don't have the, they don't have the kind of weapon, uh, a weaponry or the firepower to fight off the crowds that come for them. And so what you see in survivors is their testimonies indicate that they're that they operate with a singular purpose during attacks, and it is to survive it. And sometimes surviving means deferring to the men and their authority. Sometimes it means resisting. Sometimes it even means armed resistance. And so that's why I push back against this idea that self-defense is always an option because we know that it is not. I mean, there are people who testify to freezing you know, experiencing what we would today call paralytic fright. Yeah. And so, how you know, how do you defend yourself in paralytic fright? There are people who are injured to a serious degree at the beginning of the raid. They are trapped in their bodies trying to deal with the pain. How do they mm-hmm. defend themselves? Self-defense was an option for some, but it was not an option for everyone. And I think we do them a disservice when we don't acknowledge that. People who could defend themselves did. But we also need to know that the Klan and Klan-like groups, they're not stupid. They're not attacking in areas where African-Americans are heavily armed, right? They're not going to do that. They're going into communities where there is less likelihood for there to be coordinated activities across on the larger black community and they are armed and they've got the um, they've got the weaponry. You also see local communities, um, white authorities and communities refusing to provide guns or ammunition to blacks who are trying to defend themselves. Mm. You know, and, you know, they're also conducting raids on African-American communities, disarming everyone they find. Anyone they find with arms, they're collecting intelligence on them. They're getting reports on who has weapons and who doesn't. And then they're staging raids on them to disarm them. What I found so interesting about your book, and I I haven't had a chance to read the entire thing, but we read a couple chapters, is just your desire to shed light on the fact that people like experienced trauma and didn't necessarily have not only didn't necessarily have a, have a the kind of modern language to express it, but sort of in our, in our kind of look at this period, we, we don't take seriously the fact of that trauma. Right. I think that part of it is that when we're looking at this violence, we see it as sort of discrete attacks. You know, the men came, they attacked, they left, everything was over. Um, and survivors accounts point to something else. Um, they are, many of them are devastated by what happened. Um, Even people who testify before Congress, they have to be in the right mindset in order to do that. They've got to be able to reassemble a story of what happened to them. Um, We know um, from their accounts that there are gaps in their memory and investigators, the congressional investigators, at least are really problematic because they're saying, well, you don't remember. You don't know how many licks you got hit with. You don't know how many men were there. And part of that speaks to the chaos of the attack and how survivors are, you know, they're where their bodies and where their minds are during attacks. But what we see when we look at the aftermath is we see people who are troubled. We see people who... You know, and that's the challenge with the historical record. You know, we today we know what they might have been seeing when they say that a loved one is troubled, that they're not the same, um, that they couldn't get over it until they died. 
Um, today we've got the sort of, we've got the textbook definition of what often takes place in trauma or when people are exhibiting post-traumatic, uh, signs of post-traumatic distress or injury. Then they didn't have it, but they weren't ignorant. They understood that something fundamentally shifted within themselves or within a loved one in light of an attack. And the historical record is devastating in that you don't know whether or not they ever, quote unquote, got over it. Right. They continue to live in the world and move about the world. But whether or not they healed emotionally is something that um, has not necessarily happened. And I guess as a historian, what I know is that people are looking for the uplifting, triumphant stories. But the record, know. you know, the, trust me, I know this. I'm trying to figure out like how best to end my book um, yeah. without an uplifting story. Um, but the record is a record of devastation. People are broken open. They are gutted by what's happened. Men have to live with not being able to protect their families. The people who the Night Riders were specifically after have to live with, you know, the ways that their actions may have unintentionally brought the Night Riders to their door. Parents have to live with not being able to physically protect their children from harm. And children die during attacks. Like, we haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about the fact that there are, you know, children as young as a day or two old who are at home during attacks. Now, you think about parents. What do you do? Right. What do you do when you've got your precocious three year old who won't listen to you when you're trying to direct them, when you're trying to keep them safe? Um, and children have to live with their parents not being able to protect them. Husbands have to live with not being able to protect their wives. Wives have to look at their husbands or they might look at their husbands in a new way in light of their inability to protect them or in light of what they do or don't do in the context of an attack. Um, you have people with physical disabilities who are attacked and whose disabilities are used against them by the men. You have people who are left with disabling injuries as in their body will not be the same as a result of an attack. So there is widespread, I think, psychological devastation that historians have been really uncomfortable looking at. And I think the larger public has a difficult time looking at it, too. Um, but as someone who's seen that devastation, I can't and won't turn away from it because I think it's a critical piece of this history that so many of us have missed. And it makes it more difficult for us to understand what was gained as a result of freedom and what was lost to these attacks. So we've been speaking with Kadada Williams whose book is They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I. Thank you so much, Kedada. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.